time, nothing could replace the rush of being an Olympic hopeful. Being hand-selected to go against the Russians, massaged, getting access to top-end equipment, having his bike maintained by experts. Tom was in heaven. Then there was the training itself, racing with the official U.S. Olympic team at California State, inside the fabled velodrome. Tom would never get back to that level of thrill, not even close. But he tried. Tom made a list of jobs he thought would be as exhilarating as cycling for the U.S. Helicopter pilot, lockpicker, priest, EMT. He even interviewed for the DEA and tried to join the French Foreign Legion. But nothing stuck. Nothing could stack up against the adrenaline, the respect of calling oneself an Olympic hopeful. So when Tom washed out and gave up training, he fell back into old habits. He found his way back into a toxic pastime, one that Tom promised himself he would quit once he made the Olympic team. But now he'd been cut, and old habits are easy to slide into. Tom needed that rush. He needed to feel special again, to be exceptional. But Tom walked into the LaSalle Bank in Highland Park wearing a baseball cap and shades. He edged up to the bank teller and handed the lady a three by five card. Then Tom put his hands together and lowered his head a gesture of peace or prayer while he waited. The card said, this is a robbery, put all your money in the bag. A few minutes later, Tom stripped out of his clothes, revealing a spandex racing suit, just like Superman stripping out of his civilian costume. Then Tom clicked his bike shoes into the pedals of his aluminum training bike, buckled his silver bullet helmet on, and slung the messenger bag of money over his shoulder, and Tom sped away. Pedaling away from the cops, cutting through traffic with thousands of dollars in his backpack, giving away the money to the homeless, outsmarting the FBI. This would be Tom's new Olympics. This was how Tom would feel special again. He'd steal his narrative back. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then, we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer lay of no-duh on the internet. There's an old proverb in sports. The athlete dies twice. The death we all experience is more common death. That's the physical death of old age or tragedy, the death of the body. But long before natural causes, the athlete must first experience a more spiritual death, an ego death of sorts, when they can't seem to keep up with their sport anymore. It's when the sprinter lags behind, when the boxer can't take another punch, when the skier's knees just can't handle another slope. For everyone watching the Olympics this year, we saw this sort of spiritual death and the tragically young competitor, Camilia Avelieva, the 15-year-old skater at the center of the Russian doping scandal. She broke down crying in the world news, and you would be right to assume it was a combination of shame and disappointment, falling during her performance and getting caught on a drug test. But there was more to the tears than losing one winter event. Camilia has to know that the Russian committee never sends athletes to a second Olympic Games after they've been publicly shamed. Up until now, Camilia had lived her life as an Olympic hopeful, like a superhero who goes around without bothering to mask their secret identity. But what is she now? How does an athlete see their personal narrative without the one thing that makes them special? To find out, we have a few myths to bust about athletes who are forced to give up, or about anyone who puts the core of their identity in a single skill, which gets stripped away. Myth 1. A 2014 Gallup poll reported that over half of Americans got their identity from their jobs. Has that changed with the great resignation in full swing? Can it change? Myth 2. Athletes hone one skill their entire lifetime. If they don't have a backup plan for when they age out, that's just poor planning on their part, right? Myth 3. What does an athlete become when they're no longer a ball-dunking machine? 
what about us? What do we become when the skill we've honed becomes automated? We're going to get into our mess, but first I want to tell Joe about Tom's pre-bank robbing greatness. Some time ago, early in the inception of the podcast itself, you and I talked about Michael Jordan's Sports Hall of Fame speech. And if I remember correctly, we kind of sided on the idea that his uh, narrative about being an underdog and doing it all himself and how nobody believed in him. Did, did we land on that was bullshit? Yeah, I mean, the man, you see this a lot with athletes. And, and then in NBA and NFL, Major League Baseball, that was uphill both ways. Nobody believed in them when they were the star of the, every team they've ever been on. <laughs> they've had coaches, parents, trainers, principals, teachers all bend over backwards to get them where they are. And Michael Jordan's no, they, they they make a thing where he got cut in high school. Well, he didn't get cut. He was in the JV, and then he went right to varsity. He went to North Carolina, a huge college, drafted at the top of um, second or third overall in the NBA. He had, he had scouts after him as early as JV or something like that, wasn't it? Like he yeah. always had coaches, always had not just coaches, personal coaches, personal mentors. And let's face it, he was blessed with the big shoe deal. And yes, he was an amazing athlete, but that was a new thing. Him, Larry Bird, and uh, Magic Johnson got that shoe deal, which was at the time to give athletes money to where your shoes seemed stupid. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's made him a billionaire. So he's had a lot of business. He's just had a lot of people help him his whole life. But to play the narrative of, and just being born with that kind of physical ability, that height, and that speed, and that length is, is a, you won the um, genetic lottery, right? But yeah. it's not just that. He's just talking down about how he just, you know, no one believed in him, and <laughs> it's, just, it's it's ridiculous. Crying, tearing up over it. Yeah, it's not the whole story. Right. I, I think that is one of the big focus of today's episode. The reason why we started working on this is because um, we want to focus on the Olympics, especially with what happened during this Winter Olympics. But the idea that one would turn around and rewrite their own narrative after they found out that they are basically superhuman. Well, or you that, don't have to be Michael Jordan or the NBA to run a crazy narrative. I want you to try this with someone you know who's successful and ask them how they got it and listen to their version of the story. If you know a little bit, if you know a few more chapters of that book. <laughs> exactly. So that is, yeah, that is that is the real episode today to me. I know we're going to talk a lot about the Olympics and the old shtick that athletes die twice. But to me, anyone who has one skill, like one, one really good ability one job one title they're they're a, a doctor or like they're a, a lawyer in a very niche field that's the same as these athletes to me where they they get amazing success because they're highly specialized and then at some point they have to write a narrative to justify their good fortune and usually that's an underdog narrative usually that's a i had nothing i bootstrapped myself even if they had and let mentors, me tell you, classes you for the doctor one, you're going to hear, well, I hate top ramen in college and I saved my money. Not mention that the parents paid tuition. Not mention the mentors they had at their first hospital. Not Thank you, Todd. Omitting Thank the you. wives, husbands. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're also going to talk about the narrative that happens when that skill isn't being used anymore. You know, what are you when you don't need to do that one thing you're good at anymore? Um, and I've seen that um, the one that pops up the most to me is I have a lot of friends who are mothers and when their kids I'm at the age now where my friends kids are off to college and stuff and they're stay at home moms and they're amazing people but they they're first they identify as Joe's mother right and when Joe's gone to college and Joe's moved on with his life then they seem to be a little bit empty and a little bit lost in finding what their next cause what their next true value is yeah we we all have something we identify with in our narrative and we tie our identity to it. So you don't need to be an Olympic athlete, but this, the reason we use Olympic athletes for this is 
It's the most evident, it's the most obvious, and we get to see it play out in real time. Literally, if you're watching the Winter Olympics and you saw the figure skater get shamed out of the Olympics, choke, fall, and then when the news started talking about how you know the Russian Olympic Council does not send shamed skaters back to play again, then we all realized we were watching somebody whose narrative was about to die. So... Yeah, this is. I think that's great. Uh, the, putting this into perspective for anybody who does a niche job or has one thing that they they do in life that they identify with. Um, do you mind if I ask if Tom started with that? Because obviously, mothers they don't start out with a kid. I mean, you know, uh, people grow up with dolls in their arms sometimes especially if they want to be mothers, but, um, you know, what, what was, how early did Tom's narrative start for being basically a superhero on wheels? Tom, our Olympic hero, um, when he was 11 years old, he was exposed. He went and saw this indoor cycling at the velodrome and that changed his life. He saw this and thought this was amazing. See, before this, he always thought of um, Tour de France. That's what I think of when I think of, of cycling, don't you? They're right. riding from city to city over in Europe. It takes days, hours, whatever it takes. But this is different. He went and saw this. This is like NASCAR. It's like in a bathtub. It's very small. It's only 382 meters. And it's and the, the track is banked at 18 degrees. So these, these cyclists are fist fighting their way around this. They're clumped up. There's nasty wrecks. They say it's like NASCAR with no brakes. <laughs> so he sees this and he's blown away. So he comes back the next week. All his friends are going to come and they all show up in their, you know, this is in the, you know, the 80s. They have their t-shirts and their short shorts on, right? He shows up. He made his dad go buy him full on, buy a new bike, new helmet, gear, everything. So he knew that he this is what he wanted to do. He found his purpose immediately that's like yeah it's like me as a kid reading comics and then wearing a fake cape except this is something you could attain um okay so it was a family fit he'd already tried everything he tried baseball basketball soccer everything with a ball but this is something that just fit his body type he had a skinny uh very toned upper body and he had big muscular legs long in size he, he was built for this okay how fast can you go on a, a bike normally? Like that's like eighteen miles an hour, twenty miles an hour. <laughs> I'm thinking that we have to look that up. I don't know. Okay, well, I, I I do see in the notes that like the velodrome guys they can go like fifty miles an hour on this highly specialized track with these perfect bikes. Yeah, and I'm sure they go a lot faster. They go up probably do a hundred on the, the Tour de France and stuff. <laughs> this this is this bathtub, man. It's psycho. It, it's like a death match thing. Right. So Tom started racing. He started winning. And in 1987, not one of his friend or family member was surprised that he was selected to attend the Olympic training camp in Colorado Springs. Now, what the Olympic training camp is, is, is what we, every country who's big in the Olympics, the United States is number one every year. They have a training center where they bring in all the best athletes and try to get them prep them for the Olympics. So they have the best, they have the best dietitians, the best coaches, all the best training facilities. And the reason this is important is because he just got out of high school. People don't peak and make the Olympics in the sport till their late uh, 20s. So you can't do it like the, the figure skater when you're 15 is okay. You're not gonna, your body's not going to be mature enough to compete until you're in your late 20s. So you have to stay in shape until your late 20s. Okay. God, can you imagine that in high school? Like... I remember there were a couple guys in high school who joined the military right before they graduated. And like they used to walk around with the the training shirts to show that like they had been recruited already. And they were treated like they had been like chosen, like they they were they had a special skill that they were wanted for. Can you imagine being selected for the freaking Olympics in high school? Well, and that this is part of the problem. He was too good, too young. This was an innate talent for him. Um, so he went off to college 
And now when he wasn't at the training center training or he wasn't training with pros, he was so much better than everybody else. So he started slacking off a little bit, started smoking cigarettes, started drinking beers at parties, started to do more partying than training. Okay. Well, we all know that um, a Olympic cyclist, a you know, beer is, is what keeps him fueled, right? So he's trying to figure out a way to match this kind of excitement that he gets from, from riding in this very dangerous, very fast, very exhilarating sport. So he gets an idea, and it's 1998. He gets a disguise because it's very, very close to Halloween, so it's perfect timing. He goes and gets a funny wig and some sunglasses. He laughs now because he said the the wig made him look like, um, who's that, super freak? Rick James. Okay. (laughs) It's like a white Rick James. Right. And so he makes this plan to rob a bank on a bicycle. Isn't that crazy? Because you think about what? You think about a Ferrari or a Corvette, something fast. And then, okay, I'm sorry, I'm I'm putting my head in my hand here for a second. He's not fully washed up. Like, he's still, you you mentioned it, like, he's not going to be a full bicyclist until his mid-20s. So he's just, like, a bored 20-something, and he's like... What else am I going to do except use this superpower I have to rob a bank? Yeah, I think about one of those thrill guys that always has to be climbing a mountain or skydiving or trying to kill themselves in some way. Right. I guess if you're one of the fastest men on earth on wheels, why not? <laughs> so he gets his his Rick James wig. He gets these Jackie O sunglasses. Now he's going to do this. This is his first time. So he goes into this local bank. Um, and this is in Chicago. This is funny. So he's a very fit guy, right? Right. right. A couple of women start catcalling him when he's walking into the bag. <laughs> now, well, you know, oh, you're, you're so fucking hot. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so you're already probably nervous. I bet he probably jumped out of his heart, probably jumped out of his <laughs> chest when they did that. So he just very coolly gave him a thumbs up like, I love you too, love you too, girls. Now he stopped at a payphone and he made an anonymous call to divert the cops to a, a burglary or something a few blocks away. Okay. So he had a little premeditation about his getaway. Oh, smart. He's like, he, um, I remember that happened in, in Portland during um, uh, a couple summers ago. Somebody reported somebody with a weapon walking through the park. So that's 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 smart. That is, I, I don't want to admire a bank robber, but he seems to be doing everything right so far. Walks in very calmly. The teller is a young lady, and she sees him in his silly wig and glasses and perks right up. Like, oh, this is going to be my best customer of the day, right? This is a cool guy coming in, all dressed up for Halloween, for a party probably. Right. Little did she know she's about to get robbed. (laughs) No weapon. They say he, in a very polite, hand the card, very calm energy, takes the money, jumps into, takes off, jumps on his bike, Flees the clothes he has on. I guess I didn't put that. He put on khakis. He put on regular business casual clothes over his cycling. So he went from being a business person, Rick James, to <laughs> cyclist. <laughs> to a cyclist with a helmet and the whole bed. He he tears off the clothes, revealing the spandex suit underneath. Now he he cycles back away from the crime scene, away from the bank robbery, to his parents' house. Now his next door neighbor that he grew up with is Pat and, and Denise Carey. Um, he was also, <laughs> Pat was the Liberty's chief of police and he was out <laughs> mowing his lawn. <laughs> and he pulls into his parents' driveway and waves. He's got a, he's got a backpack with $5,500 that he stole from, from that bank. <laughs> he just wave at the cops like like the cat call like everyone who shouldn't notice him walking in and doing this has noticed him now this is the weird thing he got $5,500 you and I are thinking if we robbed a bank got $5,500 we'd start spending it right on new TV yeah something that's not what he did he knew that he first of all he considered he's an intelligent guy he thought that a lot of this would be traceable so he kept two 20s as souvenirs and then what he would do is he would leave 
money in certain places, places where kids would find it and places where homeless people would have it. So he left it like a little Robin Hood. Okay. So he only kept $40, and it was just for a trophy, not for funds. That is that is a part where we... That's where we depart from, this is another bank robber, too. This is crazy. <laughs> yeah, he gave, he gave it away to kids and homeless people. Does that make it not so bad? I don't... That's so hard for me to... Yeah, is he playing a Robin Hood? Is he... Is it him using his unique ability this narrative he's told himself that i mean if you can't compete in the olympics because you slacked off a little bit but you can still compete with other bank robbers oh oh um do we mention his his bank robber nickname yet no i don't know it you know what yeah so he does this thing where um uh one of the articles i saw whenever he would go up to hand off the card to show that he didn't have a weapon Oh, the 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 the, the bowing, the namaste. He would he would bow like he was saying namaste, and he would fold his hands in front of his chest like in a prayer, <laughs> a praying motion. Yeah, yeah. So he so the the tellers knew he didn't have a gun, or at least if they thought he had a gun, it must have been not in his hand, like in a pocket or something. But that's a sign of peace. The old yoga namaste, right? The light right. He recognizes the light in you. Right. So very polite, very well mannered bank robber. Yeah, exactly. The the FBI eventually, once they connected all these, uh, they called him the Choir Boy Bandit, which I would have called it the Namaste Bandit, but so be it. They're less creative. They're they're law enforcement, right? Um, can I share a personal story with you, just about like personal narrative and like what happens if you have one skill? Please. So. I don't know how much I've talked about my father on the show, um, but my father, Robert, he had one skill, and it was for like a, a window of his life. He worked in restaurants throughout his whole life. Like never, uh, I, I once found his resume and how much he made job by job. He made nothing forever. Was he in the back of the house, or was he a server or a cook or what? All of them. He... But even when he he became supervisor of these places, I mean, it was 20 years ago, so it was less than $10 even as supervisor. Um, but he had one job uh, working in basically television manufacturing on an assembly line. It was the highest paying job he ever held. And strangely, when he um, he went to school for it accidentally... He went to um, ITT Tech, uh, which is a technical school for electronics. Not around anymore, but it right. used to be a, a big, right? Yeah, it was, it was a big deal. People didn't go to college or didn't go to the military. That was another option for a tech school to get a career. Totally, yeah. Um, it was a vocational school, which he failed out of. He did not last, but he walked away with some electronic assembly equipment because they make you buy it at school. So he had these, when I was a young kid, I remember seeing his desk and thinking like it's a laboratory. And ITT was not cheap. No, it wasn't. It was tuition just like a regular college, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, it it was expensive. So he kept these sort of as souvenirs of his one skill. And it was like a soldering board and a breadboard and these chips and, you know, like assembly equipment. So years later, flash forward to, you know, restaurant job, restaurant job, restaurant job. And then he gets picked up to do assembly at this television company. And it was the highest paying job he had ever held. And he had it for a couple of years and things were really good. It's the first time I can remember where he actually seemed kind of happy about like having a thing to do and, and having money. So how old were you when, okay, how miserable was he at the restaurant? Because there's a lot of stress, especially if you're managing people with the scheduling and people don't show up and, you know. I, how, how miserable was he in that and how happy was he in the manufacturing of the TV stuff? Well, he was more miserable at the restaurant because he didn't feel like um, he didn't feel like he was making enough money. And there was the pressure of, you know, poverty, basically. When he was doing the uh, assembly job... He was making more money. He felt important, but he didn't feel like the people around him respected what he did. So it became an interpersonal conflict. 
he he we've done episodes now on micro stress and social friction and you know how to deal with people at work and it might have just been clicky because it's a different industry. It was it, so clicky. Oh, you nailed it. Yeah. Because yeah. in manufacturing, people get real funny. My friend of mine is working at Costco now, pumping gas. He was a very, very successful accountant, right? Great guy. Brilliant guy. But he has to take a break. He had some uh, some mental health issues. He's doing this. He says he gets bullied by these people who have been at Costco 20 years. They, they <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they form so I'm, I'm thinking of your poor dad. I'm thinking these people are like, you've only been here 11 months. What do you oh. do? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the boss that was running things like they treated the manufacturing guys, you know, as less than like they were the grunt work. The sales force was above them. Um, so he he eventually quit. And in the eyes of my family, that made him the asshole. Like like this our father the, giving uh, up the ungrateful. one skill. This is the best thing that ever happened to you and your family. And you're walking away from it. Exactly. So. When we talk about like people who are currently giving up that one skill, the the one narrative that makes them a superhero, that that gives them that that you know the Michael Jordan, you know I pulled myself up narrative. You know what happens when we give that up? What happens when we we abandon that narrative to ourselves? Is it the ego death. I think it is. As I mean, like Americans, we don't have safety nets financially. So if we're forced to invest everything we are emotionally into our job, I mean, if you if you are in another country, you might ask somebody, you know, what do you do for a job uh, or what do you do? And they might answer any number of things, but we will answer our job. I will say I'm in sales or I will say, you know, I'm, I'm security. Attorney. I'm a doctor. I'm a, a writer. Yeah. Right. Our, our personal narrative becomes the thing we do really well. But. I've been thinking lately, the great resignation, this whole movement about people quitting their jobs, walking away from things. We used to like look at it like my dad. We used to be like, oh, they just can't hack it anymore. You're, you're weak for giving up. You know, we call it quitting, uh, you know, throwing in the towel. But now that it's a movement with everyone doing it, like basically, I mean, practically people are marching down the streets, leaving their jobs then that's not a moment of weakness. You're you're marching against tyranny. So I'm wondering if it's easier now. I think it is. I've turned down a six-figure job because I knew I wouldn't be able to do it for six months. And I knew that the stress it would cause would it isn't worth the strain on my marriage and my health is not worth $60,000. Just after taxes, 35, 40, not worth it. It's, it's a no-brainer. Right. I don't care what anybody thinks like your dad. I'm like, I don't care what they think. I can't do this for fucking any longer. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You you had to have a breakdown uh, to, to leave a job. Now it's just, oh, I'm leaving because, you know, they're not paying me enough or, or they don't respect me enough. I like to think all those people that were mean to your dad, though, that that plant closed down. Yeah. And they had to go start somewhere else. And then see how it was to be treated like that. But they'd run their own narrative. and <laughs> Right. I started looking up um, when we started naming people after the thing they do. Um, so <laughs> if oh, anyone. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. If anyone thinks that like we're full of it because we are saying that people identify themselves with their with their job. That goes back to medieval times. Um, I found this BBC article we are going to link off to. Uh, and they talk about <laughs> names like Miller, Hunter, Carpenter. Our most common last name here in the U.S. is Smith because, you know. Blacksmith, right? Yeah. Gunsmith, Blacksmith. <laughs> is that true? It's absolutely true. Really? What were the other ones you said again? Miller and Hunter. Okay. Carpenter. I mean. Uh, you you go to any country, they have this. Um, That's Brewster and brewmeister means master brewer. So like people that made beer. So yeah, a lot of our names aren't biblical. A lot of our names are simply, it came from medieval times and it's, you know, your father did this, your father trained you. Okay, so that's your name. You, you are named after the thing you do. Now, um, there's a professor of psychology at... Um, University of Ontario. Her name is Annie Wilson. She talks about 
the emergence of varied jobs and income tiers. So we start out in sort of medieval history, calling people what they do. But now we sort of identify people by their title. So like if you if you think I'm I'm full of it, saying that, you know, if I if you tell me your name is Smith and I'm like, oh, so you're a blacksmith, you must have money. We do that with like surgeons. If somebody introduces themselves and they're like, hey, I'm I'm a, you know, a heart surgeon. Uh, you assume, one, they're educated. Two, they probably came from uh, a high socioeconomic class. You, you assume you're going to be able to talk to them about the opera and uh, listening to NPR and all that other snooty crap that comes with education. <laughs> yeah, in, in medieval times, my father would have been called uh, Robert Assemblyman. Like, he would have been literally <laughs> labeled what he did. Well, if a guy was a hunter, you might want to date him or marry him. Or he could eat, right? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Um, but nowadays, we just use our title. Like, in Toastmasters, we have people who put the, D, the DTM at the end of their name, Distinguished Toastmaster. I might use my title, you know, Private Investigator or something. Whatever title you have. And if you don't have a title, you you just tell people what you do. And you use the best thing you did last. <laughs> you figure out a way to work it into the conversation. Exactly. They can't tell by the way you're dressed or what you're driving. <laughs> okay, right. so... Can I talk about that? The idea that we would work what we do into the conversation and what that means? Please, am I ahead of you already? Jeez. Oh, no, not necessarily ahead. It's just you, you hit on a very good subject. Um, the same professor, Annie Wilson, talks about a phenomenon called enmeshment. Have you ever heard of this? Enmeshment. No, I like it, that word, though. Enmeshment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> has a good sound to it. Um, these are people who let their job consume their identity. And it's people that invest a disproportionate amount of time and energy into their career. The first ones up, the two that pop up that I've heard in countless speeches and psychologists have said in lectures, police officers, attorneys. Yes. They're going to let you know that, that they're going to work that in right away. Absolutely. Do you remember... Um, in our Goldman Sachs uh, uh, episode about these people who are analysts at Goldman Sachs and are quitting. And this guy, um, we found a, a Quora answer where a guy from Goldman Sachs was berating them and saying he worked 100 hours a week and it was thrilling. And right. he said it was because his work was his life. He, he was constantly going out to dinners with people, reading news and using that to gauge the stock market, yada, yada, yada. But, uh, yeah, police have nothing but police friends. They don't have friends outside of the force. Mm -hmm. They live the, the police life. Uh, lawyers do the same. Um, this is what Annie Wilson calls enmeshment. Um, boundaries between work and personal life are blurred, especially for people with jobs that are relatively self-determined, where you're not clocking out nine to five. I have a very good friend of mine who's a plumber, and is, it's the same thing generational business so he is a plumber by trade but he is the owner's son and now he owns the company that he bought so he talks about oh i'm just a plumber well he's a millionaire but he's not just a plumber <laughs> he's done very little plumbing <laughs> right but he'll run that narrative of this blue collar millionaire who just never a had anything i started this company at 16 bucks an hour for your father's company that <laughs> right <laughs> where you quickly got promoted <laughs> He really believes narrative. that, Joe. He's not embellished. He doesn't think he's doing that, you know. But f from the outside, you can tell he twisted the narrative. You can see, you know, you you actually had like like Michael Jordan. You you had mentors. You had a, a path picked out for you. Well, I'll roll my eyes, but he he just keeps talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's let let's let's talk about the signs of enmeshment because that is one of them okay bringing up your job title for no good reason especially at parties <laughs> um the other the others are thinking about work when you're home and when you should clearly be disconnected from your job lacking hobbies outside work skills so like if you're picking out hobbies and relax activities and you're picking them out based on what your job needs you to learn you're enmeshed um, does this come off as bragging I always feel like if I'm at a party and someone's pushing their job on me and how important it is, it's just bullying me into listening to them. 
Yeah. It isn't sharing things that are would be interesting to more people. It isn't getting to know it isn't getting to know them really. It's just them putting their what do you call that? The representative out to meet. I'm like a shark for awkwardness because I'm so afraid of being awkward myself. I it, I smell blood when I when I somebody starts introducing their title and no one asked for it. It lets me know this person is very self-conscious, insecure. They're insecure. They're feeling insecure at the party, and they are bringing up their title because they want to establish their social pecking order without having to put in the work of talking to everybody. They are going to be the most boring person at the party, and they're going to feel like they are the most entitled to speak out. So. My friend was just telling me this story. His name's Hayden. He's His dad is a dentist. He's at this party with his dad. And he's very successful in his own. He's, he's in outside sales. But um, a couple of people there own car dealerships. And when they found out that he wasn't a dentist or a doctor or anything, they ignored him the rest of the night. <laughs> and he was so angry. It should be. Her feelings, right? Yeah. That's what you're talking about. Like they want to get their social pecking is find out where you are and then put you in your place. Right. Exactly. The the solution to that is um, if you don't care about their pecking order, you can be like a Rasputin or you can be an oddity and just say whatever you want. By the way, when you started that story, when, when I was talking about people who feel insecure, so they establish their pecking order with their title, your eyes rolled so hard, I saw your glasses move. <laughs> um, when we say where I call for, we say save it for the chicks. <laughs> <laughs> oh. We get it, we get it, yeah. yeah. But see, your, Joe's the opposite, though. Joe, Joe has all these interesting things about him, but he'll talk about some dumb shit. That's why I always <laughs> have to brag for him. I have to enmeshment for him. Yeah, I don't want to talk about me. I'd rather talk about a boring book I read that came from the early 1900s. It's yeah. the worst. <laughs> so... If our hypothetical dentist or doctor or lawyer or police, if they lose that job, if they lose that one skill that makes them special, that that gives them the ability to say at a party, here's what I do, it makes me high on the social hierarchy, um, what happens when that is taken away? They're lost puppies. It. They feel like everybody else. They don't feel good enough. Yeah, it. it's an... I mean, it, it truly is an existential crisis. Um, like, like the thing is, is the thing you do isn't you anymore, and you're left at a blank slate. Like these Olympic athletes who are like, I am the shot put, I am the bicycle, I am the ball, I am a machine that drives a tennis racket. You take that away, and you get... I mean, like Michael Jordan has to invent an underdog narrative, or Tom Justice... Oh, by the way... If anyone hasn't caught it yet, the last name for our bank robber, Tom, is Justice, if that's not ironic. Well, I think it's the structure of success, too, Joe. There's a local football player here in Portland who plays in the NFL now, uh, Donica Sue. And he has had nothing but behavior problems while he was in the NFL. He gets fined and suspended and all this stuff. So I, I know a friend, I have a friend who grew up with him, played sports with him growing up. And I said, he must have been horrible as a kid. He must have been getting in trouble with all the teachers and everything. And my friend said, no. And I go, what do you mean? He was too busy playing football to get in trouble. <laughs> because it's true, right? When you're not doing your cycling or your Olympic event anymore, you're not off to practice. You're not off to... <laughs> right. So when you have nothing left, most people just fall into depression. Tom Justice invented a heroic bandit bullshit narrative for himself. Like, he literally went out looking for a new narrative. He made a list. He checked it twice. He landed on bandit. Uh, and speaking of having a last name that tells you what you do, could we talk about the Orange Steelman bike? You can talk about a Steelman bike, but you cannot afford one, Joe. Uh, I know. Steelman bike is a specialty bike. Yeah. <laughs> I just caught that. And what was his first name? Oh, Steelman? Uh, Brent Steelman. Brent <laughs> Steelman is a solitary builder of this company that builds Steelman bikes. Right. We He's a talk. welder we named Steelman. <laughs> a we bandit talk named to Justice, a welder named Steelman. Um. But these bicycles are, they're just a blend of form and function. They're very high-end. They're a network of triangles, diamonds, curves. 
And he does measurements to not just to the bike to build his custom bikes, these racing bikes, but he does them to the to the the rider's body. So these are customized to make you go faster and more comfortable. Okay. Now, they're stiff, they're rigid, but they're forgiving. He compares these bikes to Ferraris. So this is not the Schwinn bike you go buy at Costco <laughs> or <laughs> we go to Kmart and buy a bike. This is a, a designer, designer bike. Right. So Tom, even being Olympic level, didn't have the money or the prestige because to buy one of these bikes from Brent, you need to be somebody too. He doesn't just make them for anybody. He makes them for pros because he wants to keep his brand up nice and high, which I understand. But our hero, Tom, came across one just for the frame, this is years ago, was $2,500. So keep in mind that Steelman only builds, custom builds 50 bikes a year, period. That's it. He's the only one that makes them. He's the only one that touches them. He doesn't sub them out. He doesn't mass produce them. He doesn't send them over to China. So to get your hands even on the frame of one, Tom had to do it. Do we... Do we happen to mention how much his used Steelman bike was? Like Tom got one that didn't quite fit him, but like, you know, I'm I'm cheap. I'm going with a Walmart Huffy. What's uh what's what's this running him? Twenty five hundred dollars. Okay, that's half of a bank robbery. That doesn't seem well. And he's robbing banks. He's in California now, so he's robbing banks here and there this whole time. So now he's got this very distinct bike. That might be a tell. Okay. Because if you have a bike like everyone else or a car like anybody else. but So he should know better than to use this bike to rob any banks. This is how arrogant he was. At the time of his next bank robbery, he moved in an old roommate that he ran into on the street. And guess what that roommate is? Guess what the roommate does? Oh, God. Um, I'm going to say bike repairman. He's a cop. Okay. <laughs> so he robs the bank <laughs> and comes back. And he doesn't even have a room in this house that he's renting with this guy. He has like a place on the floor he can sleep. So he's crashing with this police officer. And he has the nerve, the audacity to go out robbing banks. He comes home one day from robbing a bank on his bike. There's three cops in the driveway. So, again, his heart almost leaps out of his <laughs> chest. But then he realizes they're just there to hang out. Because like you said... Cops just hang out with cops. They were just busy. <laughs> oh my god! He, this guy, he cannot stop running into into law enforcement and on his way home, always on his way home. We talked about in college. He drank heavily, smoked heavily. He starts to dabble in drugs. Okay. I was kind of wondering when that would happen, because as we mentioned. When you start questioning your personal narrative, when you're obviously looking for something to recapture that sort of um, the the high status of what you used to do, you depression hits. You you have an existential crisis, and and oftentimes addiction follows that kind of crisis. Gotta be kind of a value thing too, right? Because he's he's not a morally bad guy. Yeah, you know he's he's taking this money, but he's giving it to homeless people. It surprises me that he didn't need the money because we had a, an episode about FIFA and the Olympics some time ago, and we found out that most Olympians make less than like minimum wage when you calculate their, their annual income. From um, all the running around at different colleges and different careers he's trying, I'm thinking he may be well-funded by his parents. I'm thinking the same. Like I think his folks have <laughs> the only money. way it adds up. You can't make this many bad choices. <laughs> you can't change directions this many times without some sort of parental support. Right. Yeah, we read about British Olympic teams that all came back from an event and retired from the Olympics at once, and they found each other in, like, a job line. Like, they, they were at a job fair, and it's like, oh, here's all the other, uh, you know, the all the other volleyball players. Here's the great, greatest volleyball of the ball player in the history is right next to me here. Right. Um, did you ever hear about the uh, Olympic runner Susie Hamilton? I don't know her. <laughs> this almost deserves her own episode. Evil laugh there. It must be a good story. Uh it's it's another person who 
had trouble recovering their narrative after their athletic career ended. So Susie Hamilton was like the fastest woman on earth. She was a um, middle distance runner, which means about 1500 meters. And she could run 1500 meters in four minutes. That's like a four minute mile. It's so fast. And she, she did it four times or no, five times. So she, she broke her own record. Just boom, 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 boom. Um, she is still considered uh, like her record stands at the second fastest woman to ever do that. So in her career in 1992, she went to three different Olympics from 92 to 2000. She was the fastest woman of her era and she is still the second fastest at least. So record holder, rich and famous set for life. Exactly. She had, she had, um, sponsor deals sponsorships by the way when we talk about how most olympians come home broke or they become broke very quickly they don't make money because only the top cream the the couple top percent get sponsorship deals after the fact the carl lewis the michael phelps those are less than two percent right you see michael phelps on the front of cereal boxes that's not every Olympian. Most Olympians are coming home and filling out a resume to jobs they've never even considered. Um, now, she came home and she had deals. She had sponsorships. That is until a uh, online rag mag and mugshots website. You ever seen these websites or, or magazines where they like they print people's mugshots? They're like, look who got arrested. Yeah, it's it's so sleazy, but. The smoke- I enjoy those. Only with the rich and famous people. I think they had at least that. That was a rough night for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, mug shots of Charlie Sheen looking wrecked. It's always those old child stars that have turned to drugs now. That's right. pretty sad, too, you know, because you saw them as these, like, kid sweethearts, and now they're, you know, on t- making bad choices. Right. Well, that's that's exactly the type of mug shot. Or, or, sorry, that's exactly the type of story they did. Um, for um, Susie Hamilton, uh, an episode on the sm- or a article on the smoking gun came out, and they tweeted about it, and it was a Las Vegas escort ad, and it was Susie Hamilton, and so people who follow the Olympics were like, "That can't be her. That's impossible," because it's a a tweet that shows her ad with her face blurred out, and it's her posing in like a high end apartment. Or like, you know, a, um, a room overlooking the strip and she's like wearing a bikini and it's advertising sex. Um, escort. Yeah. Right. She didn't deny it. Uh, first, she reacted publicly. Why not? If it didn't show her face. <laughs> oh. They must have had some. Tweet, Twitter blurred out her face. They had the full picture. Okay. So they, they could prove it. Um, so first, there was shame. Uh, Susie reacted with shame. She apologized publicly. She lost sponsorships. Um, but then later, she published a memoir about it. Uh, she, she, I, I kind of like this about her and, and how she turned this around. She published a book called Fast Girl, uh, Running from Madness. And she talks about how the decision to become an escort was part of a misdiagnosis that she was suffering from mental illness and complications with antidepressants and uh, now she speaks at mental health conferences i totally get that because that level of the pressure i mean i always think about the olympians when they get there one every four years to even qualify as you know a long shot that they're not injured or something doesn't go wrong in their personal life right <laughs> like life just happens and to peak at that right and if you don't it's four more years I, I just think that much pressure to to maybe be rich and set for life and then maybe like you said be working at mcdonald's next week is is, is seconds you know two tenths of a second's difference it, it is and it's incredible how much time in your day Olympic training and Olympic thought and Olympic preparation and being at the Olympics. It is not just your entire life. It's, you know, it, it squeezes 25 hours a day into 24 hours. And so it's, you come home and it's just a vacuum. Like it's, it's, it's like hearing the wind blow across the desert. That's what your, your free time must feel like if you are a returning Olympic uh, Olympian. Um, so the fix 
when an athlete dies their first death, when their their sport is over, um, is support groups. It's almost the same system as suffering from long-term depression. Support groups, financial planning, um, journaling. Okay, so we had an episode uh, some time ago talking about how journaling about your values 15 minutes a day, your personal values, um, especially if they are intrinsic values, values that you find from within, not like I want to make good grades and be an Olympian values more like I want to be a good person and, you know, have a a relationship with whatever God I choose. Um, Anyone that looks to their values can come out of this narrative jam, this, this existential crisis in a bit better shape. I have, I have learned. Um, I also went looking for who is the number one expert in the world for bringing athletes back into the fold, like bringing athletes back into society once they leave the track. So this guy is from the University of Sterling. His name is uh, David Lively, and he is the man to see about bringing athletes back. He like specializes. A sports psychologist. Exactly. Sports psychologist. He's like the model sports psychologist. And he leads a nine-nation project for helping organizations understand how athletes can exit their sport and enter work or education programs. My favorite study of his, and I, I think I asked this on an episode a long time ago, um, are athletes uh, more employable than non-athletes? If you see that British um, you know, volleyball team in the employment line, do you snap them up? I think that, that they can rechannel that competitiveness that they have. Yes, in the right jobs, absolutely. And, and they say athletic-minded people, entrepreneurial, self-starters, because that's what they are. That is absolutely correct. And that is what um, David Lavallee's study found, is 1,500 athletes in a control group compared to non-athletes. And he found that across the board, the athletes perform better because they would come in with that disciplined attitude and they would channel that into what they did. I think just their, their um, consistency too. People with those kind of consistent habits will understand, let's just understand mastery. They're just changing what they're mastering, right? Right. Have, okay, have you ever considered, um, you and I both suffer from something kind of similar, which is, I'm not going to say delusions of grandeur, but (laughs) we both... I don't uh, even know what you're going to say, because there's a few things you can say (laughs) (laughs) with similar problems. We're both Some mental health. (laughs) Yeah, mental health. We're both very driven. I'll put it that way. We we both try to be exceptional. And I, reading about Tom Justice, I, I felt a little bit of myself in him. I was like, okay, I get needing to be exceptional. But if you kind of follow a little bit of Buddhism, or if you have just read The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, there is an idea that you statistically probably aren't special, and that's not a bad thing. Like, we are all capable of amazing things when the time calls on us, but day to day, we're all pretty normal. We're all just checking Twitter, enjoying our our lunch. We all like going to the movies. And I think you and I are honest with ourselves. We pick things where we have a little higher ceiling than we do. We might not think we're going to be the best, but we think we can do this at a higher, you know, at our our ceiling. Right. I guess, okay, I guess that is what I'm going to pull from for the end of this episode is I like the Buddhist approach, which is it is okay to think of yourself as normal and not put that pressure of being exceptional on yourself, but you can also choose a thing to be exceptional at. But separate it from yourself. If if you really want to know, you know, what is the answer to um, not becoming Michael Jordan or you know Tom Justice, having to rewrite your narrative and face an existential crisis, just consider yourself skilled at one thing that you have set a standard for for yourself. But you yourself are fairly normal. I. It sounds boring, but finding your core values. 
and putting what you do, your sport or job, what it demands out of you outside the Venn diagram of your values, that might be a real personality saver on the inside. I have a tragic story to share with you that is a baseball story. And this happened in the in the 80s. The California Angels lost to the Boston Red Sox, and there was a pitcher. His name was Donnie Moore. He he threw the he threw the pitch that was hit for the home run that sent the Angels home, and the Red Sox went on to the World Series. And in the World Series, Bill Buckner made a made a mistake, made an error that cost the Red Sox. So he had a similar mistake, um, if you want to call it that, that Donnie Moore did. They made a play that lost the game, that lost the series. Okay. Well, a few years after that, Donnie Moore, the pitcher for the Angels, committed suicide. He couldn't handle that he had blown the game. And years later, Bill Buckner was doing an interview with his wife, and the reporter said, did you ever think about killing yourself like Donnie Moore did? Bill Buckner and his wife almost fainted. They said, over what, a baseball game? (laughs) They were horrified. Like That would never, ever cross their mind. Right. But to Donnie Moore, that was his value was. Right. It was him. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't the skill he was exceptional at. It was him. So I, I like to believe that he and his wife, the reason why they were appalled at the idea is because their values matched their new life outside of baseball. Being a parent, starting a business, being whatever, <laughs> traveling, right. anything but that, right? Yeah, the skill is not the real you. The The value is uh, not a bike, not an assembly job like my father or a firm. Um, okay, so I, I've got to ask, since we are talking about uh, suicide and dark things that happen when you rely too hard on that narrative, can we talk about Tom's backslide into drugs a little bit? Yep, he starts graduating from alcohol to weed, smoking to weed, to cocaine, all the way down to crack. And his he has a girlfriend most of this time, and she kind of tries to get him back on the right track, get him back to training, get him back to what... He, he's manageable when he's training cycling, but he seems to be getting more out of shape to that because the drug addiction is... Um, it's, it's starting to win the battle with him. He's not sleeping. He's taking pills. He's depressed. Finally, he gets injured, and he misses his last try for the Olympics. So at this point, the Olympic dream is just a dream. Dead. It's not going to happen. So he starts drinking and doing more drugs to cope with the depression. And his body's just not the same. He's just got a lot of problems. He doesn't get to sleep. Family's very concerned. They see him with a one pocket full of cocaine and one pocket full of money, so they assume... He's a drug dealer. <laughs> right. But he's not a drug dealer, Joe. He is a bank robber. <laughs> right. He's a drug user and he's a bank robber. Can I pretend that is a Thanksgiving Day conversation they had? He's like, no, no, I swear I'm not a drug dealer. It's much better. I'm a bank robber. No. <laughs> I can just Kidding. see his poor parents, like with the fine china, the rich parents. You know, he's, right. He's got white stuff all over his face. <laughs> Looks terrible. <laughs> he hasn't slept in a year. You know, so he's wearing glow this. sticks from the rave he just went to. Yeah, he's like looks terrible. You pull it together, man. I want to talk about something Tom did. Tom was never greedy when he went to do the robberies. A lot of his robberies you're gonna see were about four or five thousand, three, four, five thousand. That's and the reason was was he just took the money from that teller, just from the drawer. He didn't try to get the vault. He didn't do more time. If he would have done more time, he wouldn't have been able to do this many. But now, with all this drinking and drugging and not sleeping, severe depression, he starts to make mistakes. And the biggest mistake he takes, remember that was that Steelman bike? Yeah. He took that on one of his robberies, and he left it behind. I get that. Superman needs his cape, but he had to ditch it, right? He ditched it, but he knew those bikes are incredibly rare. And even though he didn't buy it brand new, he knew that they could trace that back to him eventually. Okay. So he had a whole new level of paranoid. Okay. God, how does a paranoid speedster on cocaine deal with paranoia <laughs> and the so the, the the cops started researching this um fbi got involved 
And they're very resourceful. They called Steelman to talk to Brent. Had no idea. Then they called around, and the cycling community is a community, and finally they got the name. And the name was Tom Justice. Nice. Oh, um, did you happen to read about how he evaded the cops when he ditched his bike? No, I didn't, I didn't read that part. <laughs> it was one of the articles. He he got off the bike, dove into like, um, oh, what do you call it, like a drainage, oh. and like crawled into a pipe. <laughs> like a rat. A, <laughs> a rat? It reminded me of the scene in Predator where like he crawled into like the brambles and up the creek and into a hole, and it was it was wild. But I can see like the, the police holding onto his foot and him kicking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> his shoe and sock comes off. Yeah, but he but he hid in like murky water for like hours. But he's yeah. a tough son of a bitch, though. Yeah, he is. I can't. Yeah, chase down an Olympian. Like that. That sounds like a a SNL sketch. The cops chasing an Olympian. So he knows they got the bike. It's just a matter of time. So him high as a kite, lost in the world, valueless at this time. No no compass anymore. He heads to Mexico. Goes down to San Diego, walks across the border, gets in this big thing about trying to get a passport. Um, that almost gets him killed. He's trying to get a passport. He wants to go on the land for the rest of his life. And he doesn't. He doesn't have connections. He's an Olympian. <laughs> doesn't have any money. Really hasn't really thought this through. He's just going up to people <laughs> randomly asking for yeah. a fake passport. Yeah, it's not like he knew this guy Jorge down there that would hook him up. It's just some random kid on the street. <laughs> and then the kid wants Tim to go do run marijuana across the border. And he's thinking, for fuck's sake, I don't need any more trouble. I don't need any money. Right. <laughs> I don't need to go back to America. But you know what finally got him? What's that? He's lonely. He missed his family. <laughs> he was tired. And so he went back home. And finally, the FBI, they came and got him. Okay. Now, I want to tell you about this. Um, his robbery spree went for four full years. It was in the big city of Chicago. It was all throughout the state of California. He robbed 26 banks. He cleared net-net $129,000. Damn, Tom Justice, without a gun, without taking anything but one till at a time. That is wild. Now, this is crazy. So they brought him in. Tom, tired, exhausted. He confesses right away. Um, and so his parents will go out. His parents go out and hire him. This is what another side that we know his parents have a lot of money. They hired him a really good lawyer. <laughs> who rolled his eyes when they found out Tom had already confessed. <laughs> so why am I laughing at the guy? If he would have just held on for mom and dad's money. So he was facing, I mean, we're, we're, this is no joke, right? I'm, 29 banks you robbed? What did I say? Yeah, uh, yeah, 26, 26 heists. $130,000. He's looking at up to 120 years in prison. Okay. Um, for the 26 heist. He's doing Manson time, basically. And he already confessed, which is you don't really have a lot of um, chips left, right? Right. But his good attorney said, this is the choir boy, and Tom only got 11 years. <laughs> That's awesome. doesn't matter if you dunk a ball, ride a bike, or assemble computers. It doesn't matter if you performed your task for 10 months or 10 years. Your work is not your identity, not even if you appreciate your job title. No amount of hearing doctor or president before your name will ever take the place of values. Values that you've chosen for yourself outside your scope of work. Gone are the days of naming our children by the job we've trained them for. We're not in the Middle Ages. We don't call the bag boy at the grocery store, John Baggerman. And we don't call our Uber driver, Mary Red Light Runner. If your job is making you miserable, start assessing your values. Plan for a new track. Do not stick around because you don't know what you'd be without your position. Want to know what the most important job title in the world is? Mother, father, son, daughter, friend, partner. 
one of those first, if you can. By the end of his career, Tom Justice robbed 26 banks. Most of the time, he was so good at his job, nobody knew a robbery was underway until the cops arrived, confused. But that was Tom's fatal flaw. He was exceptional. He couldn't allow himself to be just a bike enthusiast or just a son or brother. After he was caught, his roommate said it best. Tom couldn't be just a bank robber. He had to be a great bank robber. Tom had to be exceptional. His personal narrative wouldn't allow for anything less. You've been listening to The Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredu.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and blog articles for each of our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything. Mm-hmm.